0: Welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices. And instead, look for the processes and questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for Higher Ed at Niche, and my guest today is Ryan Togren. Ryan is Assistant Dean for Enrollment Management at the University at Buffalo's Graduate School of Education. Ryan started out with a couple of years on the undergrad side of the house before moving over to graduate enrollment. And National Light, Ryan is also on the board of NAGAP, the leading organization for graduate enrollment management professionals. Today, we're going to be talking about the changing field of graduate enrollment management and where things are headed as student needs continue to evolve. Welcome. Thanks for making time to chat today, Ryan. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. Uh, Well, I'm going to start off with two questions I ask everybody. So first up here, what's something you tried that didn't work and what did you learn from that?
1: So I will start with a key program we attempted to launch last summer. I'm in New York State, so for two years we we operated in a fully online work from home. You know, not a lot of students coming to campus environment. Last summer, our team attempted to begin offering campus tours as a melt mitigation strategy. Mm-hmm. We we hoped to bring small groups of people within the within the guidelines allowed onto campus as a means of slowly introducing folks to a campus that they very well may be hopping onto in the fall. We tried text messaging, emails, phone calls to accepted students, or it just didn't land that they wanted to come onto campus. There was hesitation from a variety of fronts. We learned quickly that no matter how well we thought the message landed, we looked at click rates, we looked at responses, folks either didn't sign up or backed out last minute. That told us a few things. No matter how well we thought our messaging was, our action items could be, sometimes it's just not the right place, not the right time for that audience to move forward with what you think is a good idea. The key piece that our team took from that, though, is that we don't have to sacrifice the whole initiative, and we can build on some of those parts and use them in future opportunities.
0: Okay. And did you get feedback on whether it was just people weren't ready to get back to campus, or was it more... You know, the timing didn't work out for them or, or other factors of life.
1: It was a scattershot, Will. It was some logistics. So some folks simply said, I'm working full time in the summer. You know, I can come Saturday at 9 a.m. And, and sometimes this the, the intersection of when we were available and when we could offer those just didn't work. Not You know, we're a small office of folks on the grad side, which is very different from undergrad, maybe in the yeah. scope and depth and breadth they can offer. That was one part of it. The other was some uncertainty of, well, you know, I know that you've announced things for the fall. Some of my courses are actually hybrid. So I'm not super concerned about these components of campus Mm -hmm. just yet. So, you know, those who did land for maybe just didn't need that. The other component we heard often was, I've talked to faculty, I've been introduced to some of the new students I'm going to be starting with virtually, I'll wait till classes start. and, And that's totally okay, which is a small win for us that we 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 set up an environment where all the other pieces worked. We were just trying to add that last layer in. That historically, you'd think a best practice would be to offer that opportunity.
0: It, it's interesting. And tell me if I'm am wrong here, but I feel like with the grad side, you have such a mix too, where you have some students still in college, just coming out, and so they might have a very different approach because they they've just done you know college visits, campus visits recently. And you might have people in their 40s who are looking for career changes. And so that experience is wildly different for them that they don't have that recent memory of being on campus. Did you run into any of that?
1: That's so spot on. In fact, mm-hmm. I use this really che- cheesy line with our team that we received applications from everyone from you know 18 through 81 in the past year. And, and yeah. with those ages come every experience in between. So in many lights, we're actually trying to roll out Anywhere from five to thirty unique student onboarding experiences, where some involve the campus tour at the grad side because someone's coming right from undergrad, they want to you know see where you're going to eat on campus, the, their parking pass is important, etc. Whereas someone in a fully online asynchronous program has a totally different set of questions. The onboarding is done in hyper speed based on when they're admitted to the program, and we've got to meet the needs of those students sometimes not knowing a ton about them outside of some key biographical components, being ready to create that unique student experience that, that covers all of, it's almost like a cafeteria approach of picking components and being ready to, to, to jump at a moment's notice for folks.
0: Yeah, boy, if people need, need staff who are adaptable and, and uh, <laughs> able to really personalize, I mean, grad has to be the perfect example because there's so many programs I mean, you, you have so much segmentation you have to do, right?
1: And some days I think to myself, how much resource and how much human capital are we putting into something for five students in a program? But on the flip mm-hmm. side, we can say with confidence that we've created, kind of customized and created this tailored experience. And that five new students this year in a small program, that word of mouth can turn into seven or 10 or 12. Yeah. We We can never get wrapped up at the grad side in quantity oftentimes as long as we're thinking about the quality and the scalability of what we're doing and where can we take best practices that work in one place and adapt them as with as little energy as possible into a variety of other programs
0: yeah and, and you have to think too with the graduate school of education if you're educating the teachers and the counselors you can really personalize it and help that one student enroll that one student's going to impact thousands of lives across their career as well
1: that's right and it's it's easy to get behind that idea we Mm -hmm. we, you mentioned teachers and counselors we also have programs for information specialists for folks who want to become principals who want to work in, in higher education student affairs so the approach the passion towards those careers allows for our team to see the bigger picture and what and what's trying to get accomplished there
0: so what practices are you using to brainstorm and bring some new ideas into this work
1: it's important for us. I think we were forced to do it for a few years, and that seems like a very easy answer to move online, to move things virtual. Sure. With our team, we have a team of about six people between student workers, full-time staff, and, and in our admissions office. And that's on top of the 35 or 40 plus faculty or service program directors or direct advisors across the grad school of education. I personally am a big fan of throwing everything at the wall in kind of a workshopping brainstorming session to let folks kind of organically move from idea to idea to see which one catches on. When when I see folks who are on the table, especially our team in the admissions office, so people start shaking their head, get excited about something, we kind of pull that out and we try to workshop that logistically there. So, for example, we're thinking a lot about student ambassadors right now. But that conversation may have started out with reviewing or assessing our current alumni ambassador conversation. So I, I try to create space to let folks really think big about what they think we can accomplish. But then when something is really functional, accessible, excitable, we want to break into the details, the pragmatic components. And jumping back to something we talked about earlier, I often like to think once we've thought big, where is there a program, is there a pilot we can do to see how effective that can be, Right. We, we get to be afforded the ability to think small in those instances really quickly to see if a program or an idea or an initiative can be effective. And if it works, then we can think about scale. So, in some ways, we talked about segmentation being a kind of a tough thing, but in others, we have the flexibility and the nimbleness to pick a program, pick a faculty member who we know could be a good partner for a new idea, try it out without having to put a lot of extra work in to see if something, something is doable. The other component there in terms of brainstorming is making sure that me and my team are sharing articles and ideas, right? Mm -hmm. You know, following the right folks on Twitter, curating a good list of those things, not letting the the deluge of emails from vendors, from kind of higher ed bloggers, partners, third-party organizations. There's a lot of good content in those. We can pick and pull some of those things and have real good conversations and staff meetings and one-on-one meetings, et cetera. to to get ideas generated. Um, One thing that's really important for me is I meet with each of my team members biweekly and I call it their meeting. So there's Mm -hmm. some practical, hey, let's talk about ideas, but we always save space, say what's on the horizon, what's next, what have you read so that we can can generate ideas that might stay between the two of us or go to a larger team to talk about.
0: Okay, so there's a real investment in the professional development then within the office too.
1: Yeah, we have to, we have to, Hmm. especially... And grad enrollment specifically, it is so easy for two things to happen. One, you can feel as if no one else understands the unique challenges you're doing because we're in, in some way siloed by nature.
0: Yeah. The
1: other is that we might think that the problem because we're in a public school at a certain size in a certain region is unique to us. And we need to think bigger than that and think outside of even higher ed to try to bridge the gaps of you know the marketing industry. Of what undergrad admissions is doing, what people in student success or advising are doing, to think of new ways to approach
0: connecting with students. Yeah, it's amazing how much of that really does cross all areas, and everyone thinks seems to think, well, this is unique to our type of program. Like, no, it, it's it, there's a lot of universal issues. There's a lot of universal solutions as well. There's things that work at a small college that would work great at a big college, might just need tweaked.
1: You got it. And, and the thing that the small college is doing, they maybe have gotten it off the ground faster, but that's on us then to, to take that, tweak it, modify it, and, and use it for one program or use it in a kind of a niche way. And, you know, related to that, I just got back from the NAGAP conference in Chicago a week and a half ago. I needed to, that to recharge my batteries for those ideas in particular. So I was really thankful. You know, if anything, that a conference being in April felt like a good time to remember how possible that can be. When you, when you can think outside the box and not say, oh, I have to find folks who are in a central grad office to get new ideas, or I have to find someone in education to get new ideas. I can I can duplicate things from folks in engineering, from MBA programs, from medical schools. It just takes a little bit more effort and a little bit more creativity on all of yeah. our parts to build those bridges.
0: Yeah. I'm a big advocate for looking for those tangents, the related areas. No. Oh. Throughout the past couple of years here, you know, you've mentioned it a couple of times. Things have changed quite a bit. So, how has interest in grad programs changed? And are there areas that you're hearing about growing faster or some waning interests?
1: Absolutely. So, the first and the easiest one I can mention is interest in applications and counseling-related programs. It has exploded in the past few years. Really, and I think that's a good a good thing. People yeah. want to help other people. This is this should be no surprise. Hopefully across our industry or across the country more broadly. So we've seen specifically interest and desire to get into our mental health counseling programs, school counseling, school psychology, rehabilitation counseling, and counseling psychology go through the roof, where we've had to make some kind of choices about waitlisting and about kind of being really mindful about the, the personas of students that the program faculty are looking for and helping them see and manage a, a larger swath of applications than they've seen in quite some time. The second area we've seen a, a huge growth in, and this is, is, I think, less of a surprise, too, is any programs that are fully online and asynchronous. And we've actually marketed those two oper- those two components of the program um, as leading drivers. So our information library science master's program and our school librarianship program have seen um, Significant increases in interest over the past few years, and that, I think that, that a lot of that is by program design, and a lot of that has been by to um, the, the realities of of the wide range of job opportunities that come from those programs as well. The third, which is I think a little bit more surprising to folks, is we are still seeing a relatively healthy increase in the interest in becoming a teacher in New York State and teacher preparation programs. I say interest. With an important caveat, we see a continued increase in folks who want to become teachers, but want to get a master's program that is fully online and student teaching that they can do anywhere in New York. Now, this is a New York state specific, you know, uh, component that folks in other states may find different, but the ability to student teach anywhere in the state or, or, or in other components becomes a bit of a logistical hurdle folks so we're, we're primarily an on-campus program at the moment and and once we kind of introduce students to that idea they, they might cool off of it or look for different programs but the interest in becoming a teacher especially for those who may have undergrad degrees in a different area has stayed consistent and in fact increased recently
0: now when you when you say asynchronous how are you how are you translating that for students Because I I hear some of these things that, yes, everybody in higher ed knows these terms. But how are we making sure they understand what that means? And are they using different terms? That's a great
1: question, Will. And it's something we have to work on still. Our team tries to explain asynchronous as learning at your own pace within a semester-based structure. So we try to make clear to folks, we still use the word asynchronous, But we let folks know that depending on the course that they're in, they're going to have weekly assignments due or a number of projects due, and they can do them at their own pace, but there are needed check-ins. And on top of that, having the opportunity to connect with other students and faculty in live settings, too. I think this speaks to the, the need to sometimes have to be everything to everyone all the time, which is hard um, and not always possible, but the students who find, I've noticed, that are driven towards the asynchronous learning environment also want the comfort of knowing they can meet virtually face-to-face with folks as well um, in some capacity as a means of having connection with peers and a place to ask questions in a more of a live setting than simply through email, a message board, etc. So going back to your original question, we try to Make it as as clear as possible that asynchronous means uh, a, a breakdown of, of not needing to be at your computer at a certain time every week, but there will be assignments and projects due on a on a kind of regular basis throughout your coursework. And if anything, the skill set needed to take on an asynchronous program isn't harder or easier than an in person or synchronous, but it's a different skill set altogether.
0: are you seeing any changes of how how students are even? reaching out about their interest. Are you seeing an increase in in page traffic? Are they getting more phone calls, emails, more just general form fills asking about a specific program?
1: Sure. So, we are not seeing any foot traffic into our office, into our physical space. That that I think we've maybe, you know, seen a dozen to, to 20 students in the past semester come in kind of cold asking to meet with someone about an admissions advisement appointment. Our phone calls have stayed relatively consistent with respect to people calling because they through word of mouth or they called the university and were transferred to us as an introductory phone call. We have seen a huge, huge increase in the individuals who will follow up with us when they, uh, if they fill out an inquiry form, when they agree to text message with us and we follow up, through text to either encourage event registration to see if they have any questions or to remind them of application deadlines that has been our number one place where activity has increased exponentially
0: yeah that's interesting i'm curious how much of that is just the past two years having that effect or how much of it is is generational shifts as well
1: we are pretty specific in terms of what we choose to to put a text campaign through slate in and what we, we don't and we, we've, st- we've stuck to, for the most part, a lot of transactional items. Can we register you for mm-hmm. X? Did you know a deadline is coming? We're, we're intentional when we ask open-ended questions of, can we help you with anything? That doesn't happen to folks at the, quote unquote, top of the funnel per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those responses, at least from our data, span generations. And, and oftentimes, mm-hmm. what our team will do is when we notice that someone is Texting a novel, we say, can we move this conversation to phone or email? And that is super effective because we, at minimum, we've gotten a response. So yeah. uh, for us, th- there's no rhyme or reason as to who. It's just picking out, making sure we're making the right strategic decisions about who to send to and what
0: to ask in that medium. Okay. That's really interesting. How are you and your team adapting to these changes in student expectations and needs? A little with the messaging channels, of course, but how else are we having to adapt?
1: It's actually really hard to be totally to be totally blunt. It's asking our team to be really good at everything all of the time. And I I think I used that phrase before. However, I I try to explain to our team and, and take this mantra that in order to be successful in our jobs and being cross trained as an admissions team, you know, between our recruitment folks, our communications folks and our operations kind of processing team. The first question the student asks is usually not the one they really want to ask you. I, we've noticed that a lot, right? So if, they, if someone calls or sends an email saying, you know, can you tell me about the cost per credit for a mm-hmm. program? What they're really asking is I need a breakdown term by term of how much is this going to cost. And I'm not sure if, a, if I'm allowed to get a loan for this program. But I don't think folks are maybe a bit hesitant to ask that right away. The key piece that our team is trying to take on is that we realize, and we've tried to train each other to do this, our job is to uncover the hidden curriculum of graduate school. And the better we do that early on, the, the better we can be at being good receivers of questions and answerers of information. That is a big shift in terms of a two-way communication street compared to assuming that every student that comes to us has done their homework on, on graduate school. And that's a very unfair onus to put on students, especially if we are trying to find and support first-generation students, mm-hmm. underrepresented, minoritized students who do not have or have not been introduced to the types of capitals needed to understand those processes. We have to take on a service and educational role to do that. And that's a, that's a new, I think, a new exploration for a number of folks across the grad enrollment side.
0: I just want to take that and play that over again.
1: Our job is to uncover the hidden curriculum of graduate school. And the better we do that early on, the, the better we can be at being good receivers of questions and answers of information. That is a big shift in terms of a two-way communication street compared to assuming that every student that comes to us has done their homework on, on graduate school. And that's a very unfair onus to put on students, especially if we are trying to find and support first-generation students, underrepresented, minoritized students who do not have or have not been introduced to the types of capitals needed to understand those processes. We have to take on a service and educational role to do that. And that's a, that's a new, I think, a new exploration for a number of folks across the grad enrollment side.
0: that's something I think gets missed a lot there's the well we have our processes they should understand our processes they should fit into our flow right and there's not as much of this mindset on the undergrad side on the grad everywhere of we need to adapt to them meet them where they are so that we can serve a wider audience than just those who already know what to do
1: that's a 100 percent right if we ever take the time to assume people know things. We are not only failing ourselves, we are failing the goals of the programs that that we're serving. We're failing the faculty we're going to review and prepare students for whatever career it is to. Mm -hmm. In many ways, we are the first point of contact some of these folks might have had about graduate school as well. Making that phone call or send that email could have been a nerve-wracking experience. Who are we to make any type of judgment call right away about any question they have. And the more open, the more empathetic we can be, the more vulnerable we can be and opening Mm -hmm. up for students, you know, the better everyone is in the long run. And I don't know, I don't have data to support this, but if we start off conversations that way, and and like I said, this is a new, I think a a new or maybe a modified approach to, to how we support students. If we do that and a student is weighing multiple options or weighing going to grad school or staying at home or going to grad school and going to work, they may remember how open and supportive that first conversation was that can potentially help them make that final decision. We have to instill that culture in our team so that each of our interactions demands that, that we think bigger than just that moment in time with the student.
0: Yeah. You know, honestly, I can... This is more anecdotal, I guess, because it's just my experience. But when I was looking at, at grad programs before, before we had kids, the programs that I'm still interested in when, whenever the kids don't take so much time, uh, the programs that are still on my list are the ones that really did kind of build that relationship. It wasn't just, we'll send you a blanket email that has the same information you can find on the website. Um, there's, there's a couple programs that actually bu- took the time to ask questions get to know, have a back and forth, learn what I'm interested in, talk to me more. And I do feel much more connected there than I do to any of the other options.
1: Can I share an anecdotal story to that? That might be helpful here. Absolutely. So me and my colleague, Danielle Laguerre, who Mm -hmm. works in the Graduate School of Education as well. So I think it was two years ago. We wrote a letter together that we sent out in the physical mail to a fairly large number of inquiries and prospects. In that letter, I wrote almost what you just said. I I said, you know, my name is Ryan Togren, this is my role. You're getting this because you were on a list of ours. I know right now you're taking care of kids, you're taking care of parents or grandparents or uncles or aunts, Your, your job might be in flux, you know, you don't know what to do. But at some point in time, you raised your hand about graduate school. I just want to check in to see where you're at. You may not even apply to us this year or our school, but we we want to make sure that if, if that's even the slightest inkling of your interest, we're here to help you out. We're here to answer your questions, et cetera. We left that letter at the end of that letter. We gave them a link. I, th- we, I can't remember exactly what we did, but we offered an opportunity to meet with me specifically. Mm-hmm. I scheduled, I think, 26 one-on-one meetings from that oh. letter And and folks and folks who didn't say yes respond email say you know what it's not going to work but thanks for at least acknowledging all that is happening around us before you did it and and it kind of bucked the trend of it was a long letter I I I am so long winded in my emails everyone has to tell me (laughs) that we can't do it but like sometimes quality over quantity can work when it's when it's open it's vulnerable and it's honest
0: yeah the the search cycle is long for grad as well because there are so many distractions uh i thought it was going to start almost six years ago now and now i have a <laughs> six year old and a, a <laughs> and and so you have all these other things that get in the way but um uh, we're, we're going to be releasing here in a few weeks uh actually i think probably when this when this podcast episode drops in the next week or two a, a survey of graduate searchers and talking about their their timelines their processes what they're looking for 25 percent of students said that they'd been searching actively searching and researching programs for 1 to 2 years and another 16% for 2 or more years. It's a long cycle because you have these things that get in the way.
1: And to that point, Will, we've got 41% on on that side, 1 to 2 years. That means someone right now, right, who's who who indicate interest to me on our, phone, our inquiry form fall 23, fall 24, right? We have, we have to have options that far out. Because mm-hmm. they're, the the cycles you know so so open. On the flip side, for someone who happened to realize that there are options of fully online one year certificates or programs, their inquiry time might be six days, four days. You mm-hmm. know, they want to apply right now. They have their bachelor's transcript and they want to start in a week. We can't always yeah. give them that that week follow up, but it's amazing that again we have to work in an environment that meets the needs of our two year folks and our two day folks and that is can be pretty tough you know having to run the fire drill to help that student get registered you know enrolled if it's possible that quickly but also then think about drip campaigns that that allow someone to stay engaged for two plus years
0: yeah it's a it's a long cycle and you have to meet a lot of needs i i have to think that just having that that human touch just really made you stand out too i hope so yeah <laughs> so looking looking back at the the top of the funnel or the start of the dance uh you know what's working now for for generating inquiries you know how are you attracting that attention
1: so we have some digital marketing and digital search campaigns through through our third party partner that we're working on Mm -hmm. right now and we actually just received some data We're, we're, we're trying to build the inquiry pool for our teacher education programs and it turned out some of the strongest search terms are on non-branded searches. So nothing about the University of Buffalo, nothing about the grad school of education. Folks are simply searching for teacher education programs, how to become a teacher in New York, various terms like that. So that's telling us quickly that we'll need to shift some strategy and shift some some dollars to those terms because there is a market out there. So for us, what's working is being ready to adapt to what our our data is telling us. And knowing that we, the University of Buffalo, may not be the top thing, but the career pathway, the career option, searching on those items may be more important. So we need to see how we use those strategies for teacher preparation, for counseling programs, and then also too for some of the niche programs that we may not have, you know, enough searchers for. But we need to think about a bit more creatively in terms of how to build the funnel for those. So that, that's that's the first piece. Um, the other place we're trying to build inquiries is. is being realistic about our geographic location and, and trying to, in some ways, pound the pavement to get, talk with faculty, student clubs, student organizations, or related program staff at nearby schools who may want presentations about applying to graduate school, about how to get strong letters of recommendation, about what's a strong personal statement. We spend a pretty significant amount of time simply searching at nearby schools for the emails or contacts and asking if those types of presentations would be helpful, not to say we have to get all the names of the students in the class or that we have to, you know, do a pure kind of salesy presentation, but we offer a variety of presentations that can help students with graduate school more broadly. Would you like that as a service? And we might happen to mention the programs we offer as part of it too.
0: Okay. So have you been back to sort of the either in-person or virtual uh, graduate fairs or any of those tactics or are those kind of on the way out at this point?
1: So I don't want to speak for the the industry as a whole, but our office's philosophy right now is we will do a virtual graduate fair if we're comfortable with seeing the platform beforehand and understand the interface before we start it. Mm -hmm. And if it's possible with our registration costs Will we get a list of names of everyone who pre-registered for the fair? Those are our two non-negotiables. In order to, to do a virtual fair, I would have a lot of trouble sending myself or any member of our team on an overnight trip for a graduate fair. And then in the next year, we are lucky geographically that there are some drivable places that are likely going to do in-person fairs. And if we can go to one of those and also independently set up some class visits or a presentation about the teaching profession or about counseling programs or about higher education, student affairs, you know, about some, some career pathways that will be worthwhile, but a fair on its own, I'd have a hard time justifying the cost given the various other ways right now we're able to, to get in front of students. I will add as well that with the removal of standardized tests from the admission requirements for all of our programs and some of our, our peers as well. The idea of historically buying names from the GRE or a related search service mm-hmm. because of a test being taken has been essentially wiped out as an option given the, the kind of lack there of need of those to apply to programs too. So that kind of top of funnel option sometimes has has been wiped away. So we've, we're still trying to generate new ideas of ways to build that pool.
0: Is there? I know you're a little bit different situation being part of the State University of New York system. Is there any system wide recruiting efforts, anything like that that you can you you partner on there?
1: So there's no system wide recruiting that I know of quite yet. However, we do receive leads from open SUNY or SUNY online. So okay. if a student happens to find that search functionality and they choose one of our programs, we will get leads through that system funneled right to us from their system into through slate which is a huge help for our fully online programs, but that does not extend into in-person on-campus programs.
0: Okay. Was this was this a topic that you saw a lot about or heard a lot about at, at NAGAP, or is this sort of a no-one-quite-has-the-answer-yet issue?
1: I don't think folks have a clear answer yet. Um, I did actually have a really interesting conversation with um, a vendor while at NAGAP about how to bridge the gap with professional development groups for career Mm -hmm. service and career development professionals. I think that for a long time, and this, this goes, I have been thinking about this for about four years now, since I was the president of the New York chapter, where we thought about how we could engage with folks across the state, is that how can we create a space to have a real conversation with the career services offices, career development professionals about the needs of students they interact with who are thinking about industry or grad school, and the services and opportunities that graduate admissions and graduate enrollment folks provide, that's not simply about trying to be territorial, right? Mm -hmm. I can acknowledge that there are other programs in New York that have teacher preparation programs, counseling programs, etc. I am not, I am in a coopetition space, not a competition space, right? I want people to find the best fit program. And if it's not mine, that's okay. But there's likely ways we can figure out to, A, introduce students in a more comprehensive way, to your point, a system-wide way about grad school Mm -hmm. options across SUNYs or across the state, and also to not feel as if by doing that, we're hurting our institutions or our bottom lines because we're letting other schools kind of enter into a space we're trying to keep to our own. I don't have the answer for it yet, but I think that that's a necessary conversation that has to happen soon.
0: Okay. Getting back to sort of this the survey results and what really got my mind taking around having lots of questions and, and uh, around the grad space, um, almost a third of students in our annual grad survey said that they are pursuing a degree in a different area than their undergrad degree. So they're, they're switching careers essentially at this point if we want to think of it that way how are grad admissions adapting to serve these transitional students?
1: I think that this speaks to the idea of websites and top of funnel or early on communication materials being clear that this is even possible for folks, right? You don't need a, a, you don't you don't have to have a psychology degree to go into a counseling field, right? You don't have to have a specific degree, let's say to, to apply to law school. Yeah. The ways in which we introduce that information early are necessary components so students don't feel crowded out when their interests diverge from what their undergraduate program was, or they've been in industry or a certain career path for 5, 10, 15 years and are looking to make that change, right? Yeah. We, we can't fill our websites with every piece of information for every audience all the time, but there there need we need we constantly need to think of ways to make sure that no one leaves leaves the idea or the decision set of, of changing careers going to a different grad program um, and ensuring that folks feel included or that it may be possible. On the flip side, I think it's also equally important to not give someone a false sense of security if their background is so divergent from where they're trying to go that you know they don't learn early on that, oh, wait, there are some real critical prerequisites or key components that I need to find a new way to get before truly thinking about being serious about a certain type of grad program. And I want to acknowledge that that's kind of rare, but it's important in the same way that being inclusive and open to, um, like you said, career changers or transitional students is important Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Yeah. Thinking about some of the the prereqs and things like that, are there, are there a growing number of sort of these post-bac programs where you can kind of get the undergraduate coursework you need, quickly in order to apply. So if I have a degree in a completely different area, how do we kind of get these people ready academically for a new program?
1: It feels like such a important case by case scenario, right? Yeah. I remember when I was in a I was in my, my previous role in an arts and sciences graduate program, we had a biological sciences MA program, Master of Arts that essentially served as a postbac towards applying to medical school, dental school, vet school, et cetera, in that Mm. same way, right? We had to market it or promote it specifically as a way to catch up from things that you didn't realize you needed or wanted or had to have during your bachelor's, right? So the quicker institutions realize that there are these small spaces to help students transition. And are those grad credits, are those undergrad, are those non-degree, are it going to be different by institution? Mm. But, but, Knowing that the data that you, you're seeing shows an increase or a significant percentage of students being transitional means that schools, whether they're education schools or whatever, at the grad level, need to be nimble enough or have programs to prepare those students seems more important than ever.
0: Yeah. And there were some of these students who already had a master's or something like that and were looking for either another master's, a doctoral degree, a professional degree, and a completely different area. And it's interesting to see how are they preparing themselves for that transition. You know,
1: I, th- I think, too, one of the important pieces there, and I think our faculty in the Grad School of Education have done a tremendous job partnering with our admissions office to do so, is being able to talk about how a personal statement, letters of recommendation, and the, kind of those, those interpersonal skills translate into success in graduate school, right? If you have strong writing skills, but maybe don't know about, you haven't written on a topic that you, you're hoping to you know, go for a master's program for, it doesn't mean you're disqualified as a strong candidate. You actually have to instead think creatively about how those skills translate and almost paint the picture for someone. That, that's not easy to do, but I don't think it's impossible to do for folks. And I think that's the piece that, again, admissions offices, partnering with faculty to, to tell that story to students early on is really important. So folks do know what the realistic options are, whether that be to apply right away for a program because, you know, their, their 10 years of project management experience can be a good stepping stone. Or take a non-degree class first to really make sure this is the right fit for you. And if it is, here are the ways you can maybe use that class in conjunction with your experiences to be a potentially strong candidate for a program.
0: Perfect example. I'm sure you and your whole office have undergrad degrees in enrollment management, right? But- <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but having having this diverse background makes for much more interesting people. And especially when we're talking about teachers, counselors, doctors, lawyers, you want these diverse backgrounds. So we have people who can speak more than just the language of that field. That's right. Mm-hmm. and And there's a need
1: to be honest about the the state requirements to do those things but then also how to navigate those successfully to to reach your goal one
0: of the other interesting things that came out of it you know students are saying they're valuing the program reputations more than a whole institutional reputation when looking at grad programs you know they care much more for what do others think of this program what is the what is the outcome of this program instead of the whole institution are colleges adjusting this and playing on their programmatic strengths So especially if it's a program that maybe it's a strong program, an area that the whole institution might not be known for. The institution has, you know, this this maybe not as well-known name recognition, but has some really sort of tentpole programs.
1: This is the single hardest part of my job, and it is my top priority to work on in the next 12 months. How do we get better alumni survey data to tell Mm -hmm. that story, number one? Number two, how can my team help our faculty when they are spreading the word, like giving talks, doing things in the community, how can we make them unabashedly promotional in their work, which is sometimes goes against everything that they're kind of trained to do and helping spread that message out. And that the same thing can be said for our alumni as well. Yeah. The third piece of that is when a program is really niche, really small, maybe un- like not what the university is known for, how do we, extend that that reputation beyond the university if we're being told oh there you know not enough folks search for that it's going to cost a lot to market that program digitally you know you know traditional methods of you know advertisements billboards won't work you know what what are the ways you can actually get the word out there then short of you know word of mouth um in a kind of a strategic way that does not eat up all of your resources and time as people in an office too so I don't think I gave you a specific answer to that quite yet, but I, I, I think I what I, my reflection is that that can become a, a project and a process that eats up every minute of your day trying to figure out how to get the word out about something you know can be valuable for someone. And you said to get in front of the right people.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier about having student ambassadors and alumni ambassadors. Do you have sort of these toolkits of here's how, you know, in your role you can talk about our great programs?
1: That's what we're working towards. My team is actually preparing a suite of student ambassador tools this summer that we're going to launch with with about eight students, I'm hoping, in the fall between information sessions, sharing things on social media, uh, kind of organically, so that we can get the word out about good student stories. I'm so thankful. Um, the marketing communications team in the grad school of education has humanized a lot of the work that's happening across what students are doing in faculty in some real awesome ways. We just now need to turn those around into admissions and enrollment action steps. And that's you know, the ambassadors are one way giving a faculty toolkits when they go to do talks and presentations will be the next one. It's just, you know, how do you carve out the time when you're in the middle of, you know, putting out fires day to day, being reactive? Mm-hmm. How do you stop, slow down and, and take proactive time to build these next things up, knowing that they will have a big impact if you can slow down and do that?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one because you don't have, like everyone knows the University of Buffalo logo and all that. How do you promote a specific program in there because you don't really have a brand idea? I don't think anyway, maybe you do. I don't think there's a brand identity for every program or even every college, right?
1: That's right. And and your point earlier, I can be honest that the Graduate School of Education is a, a relatively smaller fish in, in a large mm-hmm. pond at a public institution. And that doesn't mean that we're not, we're, you know, there's not important, incredibly strong high value work happening here. It's just like you said, you know, when you dig into that specific programs into a relatively smaller school at a large institution, you 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 have to do even more work to 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 dig out of that and go bigger bigger than you be for lack of a better term to get the word out about that.
0: No. When you're when you're reaching out initially to students, are you talking about Here's the specifics of our program, and then getting into a little bit about here's who Buffalo is, or is it all together, or what what's that mix look like, especially at a larger university.
1: We try to be very specific about the program first, right? I, mm-hmm. I I we make the assumption that some of the specific details about what makes the program unique, you know, sometimes even as specific as. You know, the length of the program, when courses are offered. Those, those are oftentimes, because of the wide range of learners we interact with, those are the top level questions. It's great that UB is a premier research institution. It's great that we're, you know, the, a flagship. That might be the last thing someone is worried about, to your point. When they're thinking about graduate school we will make mm-hmm. sure that, that message is delivered because it, it, it's, it strengthens the other points of about you know the strength of our faculty the strength of, of the research agendas that are happening the student outcomes but if we lead with that i think we're probably not answering the top of mind questions for folks and we need to be mindful of that first and foremost
0: well coming off of nagap here in chicago you know you're back here in, in buffalo now what are some of the big trends that you were seeing there and what, what were sort of the biggest buzz items that might be different from past years?
1: I noticed four items that I saw frequently were in presentations and, and, anecdotal conversations. And this is just me personally, but this is what I took away from it. The first is something I call data infrastructure. When it comes to return on investment, when it comes to understanding, you know, is what you're doing, working, I think a lot of folks are being in graduate enrollment spaces are thinking critically about in-house data that they need to not just have one off, but an infrastructure and an architecture that allows them to give information to multiple constituencies in a bit more of a, as you need it frame. Like, so what does your dean need? What do faculty program directors need? What do you need internally to know if something is working? What does a vendor need to help you with with an issue? Mm-hmm. That that kind of work takes a long time to do, and how can you take time, uh, you know, aside from that, to build an infrastructure to have a variety of those components ready? Because at the end of the day, that data helps you tell your story uh, for funding decisions, for w- w- you know the value of your work, etc. And I think mm-hmm. I saw multiple presentations try to address that, or it was part of multiple presentations I went to as well.
0: Okay, if, if I can jump in there, was it more? About making sure that you're collecting the right data that's clean, that's stored in the right ways? Or was it more about building the dashboards that people can then access and sort of query at their own demand?
1: I think it's the first one first, right? Okay. Clean, good data that is warehoused and lives in a central space, right? Not five central spaces, but if you can, yeah. w- at least one that then, if that's done well, and t- it might take a year to do you then can dashboard and can pull from that knowing that it's in a relatively central warehouse. Okay. The second one was, and this came from some of the early information I saw on on, on the um, the NAGAP needs assessment data, is that are is there or are, are there expansions of folks in generals needing to have backgrounds in or do work on student services for current students? on financial literacy and on I maybe mean, any alumni work too. So, you know, NAGAP clearly is is now positioned to support folks across the, the graduate enrollment life cycle. But now mm-hmm. we're not just seeing that in, in position titles or, or kind of saying that, but that folks are looking for skills in, in PD through NAGAP for some of those, uh, you know, life cycle issues as well. The last one that I'll bring up is the this kind of continued need for community for those who work in gem offices so to a point we talked about earlier having a resource and a network for if and when you feel like you're the only one on your campus who might be at the intersection of an issue or your office is uniquely you know struggling or looking for feedback on something so i think folks were kind of were reminded that you you aren't the only one with that problem or not the only one looking for it. a a third party solution for something, or you're not the only one celebrating a win with what seems like a small number of students, but to you it was a year's worth of work and having this kind of gem graduate enrollment specific space to do that is is needed to make sure our batteries can get recharged and that, Mm -hmm. and that there are other folks, you know, in those same scenarios
0: as you are. You know, you're at a large institution. How much, is there sharing of resources and, and data, and how much is each college expect, expected to be self-contained in their enrollment efforts?
1: So at the University of Buffalo, I'd say it's a both-and. Okay. I am I'm thankful for a number of the collaborative meetings and funding opportunities and ways in which I can talk to the grad enrollment folks and 12 other academic units across UB, even if we are doing things completely different. There is, yeah. there is enough of a culture right now where we, we talk openly. We have, you know, we have we have a few groups on campus that meet monthly. Um, this is where I want to give a shout out to the work that you know I would love in a perfect world to have the model that Ohio State actually has. They have an entire, essentially mini NAGAP for their grad folks across the life cycle that I would love someday to see replicated at any school that's the size of ours or theirs mm-hmm. to do. To your original question, we have that in place but at the same time, at the end of the day, we are meeting the needs of our units' tuition revenue goals and headcount goals. And sometimes, in some ways, we are in direct competition for students. And that that is just a reality that we do, and, and, and that, that doesn't stop us from sharing and, and collaborating. But you know, at the end of the day, we have to kind of prioritize sometimes some of our own independent, maybe even siloed work, because we, we've got to meet our goals.
0: Yeah. Have you seen anyone trying to go to a sort of, I'll call it the undergrad model of a central graduate admissions office with sort of these coordinators at each college and everything's run through there? And, or does that just get way too complicated with so many programmatic level things? I think
1: that at the at UB at least, we have some really strong central folks in our, and a few of our central offices on our graduate enrollment services office as well as our graduate school, we have a central instance of slate for 11 of our 13 units. And without that central office, those wheels would not run. It would not be possible. So there are some logistical and operational components that have to be centralized, right? Or we will fail as a university trying to do some of this kind of conjoined work. At the same time, to your point, we need the autonomy because trying to centralize some of that stuff simply will be a detriment to the faculty and the work that they do to promote their programs and just the uniqueness and how far we drill down in program by program recruitment, you know, we'll get lost pretty quickly.
0: Well, I just want to give you a minute here to, to give a last word on if someone's not familiar with NAGAP, but they're working in the graduate space, what are they missing out on? Why, why do they need to go sign up now?
1: Sure. So I would give two key reasons they need to sign up now. Number one, NAGAP has provided in the past two two to three years, maybe even longer than that, more research and benchmarking data between NAGAP and their strategic partners than than I could ever imagine, right? There's flash surveys where there is data available to members. They have partnered with um, a number of organizations. They're putting together information that will help folks in grad admissions and grad enrollment have resources that can help them benchmark to do their jobs better the other piece is that through the creation of the exchange which is like eventually a virtual message board plus professional development opportunities plus engagement with our chapters plus the annual summit i think that folks who are working in in this space within higher education it cannot be overstated enough how important networks and connections can be not just to to know people but to, to be able to lean on those folks as peers for resources and to lean on those folks if and when you need a, a kind of a sounding board that's not your institution, but understands the lingo and the background of what you're trying to do, being a member of NAGAP opens you up to a virtual and an in person community that I think helps a lot of folks gain some, ex- not, not just their own personal expertise, but they can then use th- that to say, you know, in meetings with folks, I've actually kind of ask this question to colleagues and peers who I've connected with through my professional network. And this is why I think we should move forward with this idea. I think it's a pretty powerful mm-hmm. thing to have. And being a member of NAGAP gives you access or gives you the ability to connect with those folks in some real, authentic
0: ways. Well, Ryan, I just want to say thank you so much for the time today. I uh, really appreciate it and let me pick your brain on on all things grad and where things are headed. Thank you, Will. Have a great day. Yeah, you too.